Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings and welcome to our deep sea domain. This is Under Consultation, an episode by episode podcast type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and like all podcasts from the 1970s, this episode will be dominated by violence. And welcoming you to an episode that is more packed than the packed World Cup of 1980 packed, I am Ash Versus. And this episode did indeed air on the 28th of November 1996. Tomb Raider and FIFA 97 topped the video game charts. The Prodigy topped the pops with Breathe. But we've got a new number one at the top of the UK box office. The Crow, City of Angels. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes the crow can bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. I thought that Eric was the last. I never imagined there would be another. It's another time. It's another world. And another has been chosen. It's a David S. Goya film on under consultation. Who'd have thunk it, eh? It's not a great film, but it is far from the lowest the Crow franchise will sink. Yeah, we're basically at the point now, like we had the first film a couple of years ago, really tippy top of the highest highs. And now we're just on the slow descent of quality of Crow movies, which means that while this is a step down from the first one, it's not the bottom yet. Far, far from it. It did suffer a little bit from a studio going, we want a sequel to The Crow, but also because of what happened to Brandon Lee, We don't want it to be too much like The Crow, so it avoids comparisons to the original. Yeah, it was make me a crow movie, but try not to make it a crow movie, if at all possible. Could we just have it be like crow-ish? Yeah, crow-adjacent. 
I think is what they were looking for. Really, for me, The Crow City of Angels, I can't tell you much about the film. I can tell you I've seen it because I've seen all of the Crow movies, at least all the ones I'm pretty aware of that I've seen. But for me, Crow City of Angels is all about its soundtrack. I, I've owned the Crow City of Angels soundtrack. It's a great old soundtrack. It's featured some very interesting covers on there. Hole's cover of Fleetwood Mac's Gold Dust Woman, Bush's cover of Joy Divisions in a Lonely Place, and White Zombie's cover of I'm Your Boogeyman, which is a really, really great cover. Plus, it's got tracks by Corn and Deftones on it. So that's very much my jam. So much like the first movie, it's got an amazing soundtrack. Unlike the first movie, it's not a good movie. What it does have is an abundance of musicians, like actually in the film. I mean, the Deftones appeared as themselves. Ian Jury of The Blockheads was in there. Iggy Pop. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I was reading through the Wikipedia on this earlier. Like, Iggy Pop was there. And, like, didn't John Bon Jovi audition for a role in this movie? The leads were going to be John Bon Jovi in the lead role of Ash slash The Crow and Tori Amos, who turned down the role of being Sarah. Probably one of the smarter career decisions that Tori Amos has made. This film's okay. This film, you can have a bit of fun with it. It's fine. It, it, it feels like straight-to-DVD fluff. I think that's like one of its biggest crimes, really. And it doesn't feel like an actual proper sequel to The Crow, probably because it's a studio that doesn't want it to be a sequel to The Crow. Although, like, the idea of having so many musicians in the movie makes so much sense because it's a music-based series. Like, you know, Eric Draven was a musician, so it kind of makes sense for your sequel to cast as many musicians as possible. But Bon Jovi... <laughs> Hey, he was in that submarine movie a couple of years after this. And he was in Vampires Los Muteros, the sequel that made the first Vampires movie look good. You see, like, he's got a pedigree already. He's got a pedigree chum. <laughs> Absolute dog's dinner of a movie. And, uh, oh yeah, and a young Thomas Jane is also in this movie as well. Not a musician, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, no, but I think he does like music. So, kind of like how they wanted a movie that is Crow adjacent, he is therefore music adjacent. Do you want to be in the sequel to The Crow? And he's like, oh, no, we've got Iggy Pop. You get to see the Deftones. It's like, oh, sign me up. Bon Jovi might be there. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite review when I was reading to the, the wiki for this is Joe Layden of Variety calling it, and I quote, stunningly awful. <laughs> that is i love those as genuine quotes when you use a positive word to then follow up a really bad word i use that a lot in my own reviewing world for me the real kicker of this entire movie is we started it by saying it was a studio that wanted a crow movie there was not a crow movie therefore the studio the filmmakers the writers were all trying to make a crow movie that was not a crow movie we almost had a crow movie set in the 19th century that's how much they didn't want it to be a crow movie However, after the first cut and the first couple of test screenings, Miramax ordered the film to be re-edited to resemble the first film as much as possible. As a result, Pope and Goya disowned the film because they were like, fuck you and fuck this. Yeah, that's right, folks. Studio involvement is never a good thing. got the prodigy at the top of the pops we've actually got it for another week so maybe we'll talk about that a bit more next week do you want to do that instead absolutely fine with me i mean this is just when the prodigy are on an 
absolute tear. Firestarter, breathe, smack my bitch up. And it's not like they were kind of slouching before this run, but man, every time they released a song at this point in time, you knew you were going to hear it on the radio, apart from possibly the next one, but you knew it was going to get a lot of play and get some time in the charts. That a Firestarter did wonders for their career. And like you, like you say, like as soon as they released the next single, it became a really exciting thing of what's the next Prodigy track that you're going to get. Breathe is an absolute belter of a song. So, so good. That bow now 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 bow now now bow now 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 bow now now. It's so fucking good. However, moving over into the TV news, I'll do this bit first. 24th of November, ITV introduced a fourth weekly episode of Coronation Street, which will now air on Sunday. So, for you Cory fans out there, there's four episodes of it a week however the day before is our big news story i think but for me personally anyway for 1996 which is on november 23rd the bbc picks up the terrestrial rights to the simpsons which is first shown at 5 30 on bbc one with a sunday lunchtime repeat on bbc two there's no disgrace like home is the first episode to be shown on bbc one Remember the good old days when entertainment was bland and inoffensive. Well, it's not anymore. Oh, baby. <gasps> miracle breakthrough? There's been a miracle breakthrough? You'd better believe it. It's the television event of the year. All right! Yes, yes! The Simpsons have landed. They saw our lives and put it right up on screen. Right here on BBC One. You shouldn't watch that other channel. Saturdays at 5.30. How can one little insulated wire bring so much happiness? It still somewhat shocks me that where did The Simpsons land on terrestrial TV? The BBC. It feels anti-BBC. To your point, The Simpsons replaced Dad's Army in that 5.30 slot on a Saturday. And I was actually reading a couple of like news articles that were around the time, and they were all saying that it's really weird that the Beeb have picked like this show to replace Dad's Army. Also, this show is getting less viewers than Dad repeats of Dad's Army were getting. Like it got five million viewers for its first episode, which is less than what Dad's Army had got the week before. That's because every single retirement home in the UK was tuned into Dad's Army on every single TV because target audience. The episode that showed No Disgrace Like Home is the fourth episode of the first uh, series. Here's some fun facts about it, though. It's it's the one with Dr. Marvin Monroe, if you're wondering which one it is. Uh, also, it's the debut episode of Itchy and Scratchy. And it's funny as well, because I think like it's sort of Simpsons historians and fans of the show look back on it as a really weird episode of the first series, because it, it really follows on from the Tracy Ullman stuff, but it doesn't feel like The Simpsons, like what The Simpsons will become, because... Lisa is just as much of a brat as Bart is. Marge is the drunk of the episode. She spends the first half of the episode drunk and embarrassing the family. Homer's the level-headed one. Homer in this episode pawns the TV so that they can go get family therapy. It just feels like a, a disconnect of what The Simpsons is going to become, like not even in the next few years, throughout the rest of series one. I don't think it's a bad episode, but it's, and it's, I think if memory serves, the first episode of The Simpsons I ever saw, because a friend of mine had it on one of those like two episode videos, is mm-hmm. that one and the one with uh, Bart the General. So I've got like nostalgic love for it, but it is a, an episode that is very, very weird when you sort of look back on it with hindsight. I'm trying to remember where I was with The Simpsons at this point, because obviously I didn't have Sky, but I know I did rent slash own a number of those VHS releases. Plus, you know, I had friends with Sky. 
I st- I'd seen The Simpsons by that point, but this would have been probably my first time of actually getting mainstream access to a continuous flow of The Simpsons episode, which feels batshit in retrospect because this is seven years down the line, more than yeah. that. Well, actually, I mean, the lot of the news articles I was reading about this, that's something that they bring up is that, like, how has it taken so long for The Simpsons to appear on terrestrial TV? You know, like, this is a show that debuted in the States in 89. We've had it in the UK, or Sky have had it in the UK for the last number of years. And they're kind of raising the point, like, Simpsons mania is not at the peak it once was, but mania certainly is. And, like, when I was a kid, before, like, this was, like, my first access to The Simpsons, didn't have Sky or anything like that. I had a Bart Simpson sticker that was on, like, my wardrobe and stuff, because I got it when i went to the dentist i had one of those simpsons annual things and i had like i'd played the simpsons games and stuff but i'd never seen the show so it was this like the weird thing that i had like a lot of knowledge about but never actually seen and this was my first ever introduction into watching it on a regular basis absolutely loved it and i went through this period of taping every episode i had stacks of vhs tapes that were just taped BBC Two airings of The Simpsons. Because we get into a period of time where they just air them every weekday night at like six o'clock. And I would set it up and I would program the VCR. Like on a Sunday night, I would program it with like the, um, I can't remember what they were called now, basically like the code you can get in the Radio Times. I can't remember the exact, they had a name and I can't remember what it is now, but you just put that in and it just automatically records that episode that corresponds to that code. Video Plus. There you go. Thank you very much. So ITV had counted... Uh, the Simpsons. I actually don't remember this, but ITV countered The Simpsons on their airing. We talked about this a little bit last week with Sabrina the Teenage Witch. It's the cool new show with a teenage witch. I've got to get better at this magic. Sabrina, she's still trying to master spells. What have I done? I broke the baby. The mystical talking cat. Do I smell teen witchery? Two charming aunts. That's the little baby. Bunny clown. Watch it. When magic's in the air, life is full of little problems. The cool new comedy, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Saturday 5.30 LWT. Uh And I found this article from July 2005 that writes, William Phillips noted in broadcast that this is the first time for decades, if ever, that two American series have premiered opposite each other. Curiously, perhaps, within a few weeks, Sabrina was outperforming The Simpsons. ITV crowned that this was a, quote, major embarrassment for the BBC, end quote. And sure enough, in February, the run of The Simpsons abruptly ended. Nonetheless, Radio Times promised the series would return soon on BBC Two, and so it did, on March 8th, 1997, in a new slot, 6pm on Mondays and Friday evenings, plus an omnibus on Sunday lunchtimes. I think the Sunday lunchtime omnibus was when I was seeing a lot of it, because, you know, buck of all to do on a Sunday. Much easier, and also you could just set the video and get two episodes in one go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, they're right here. Like that was when The Simpsons and the BBC actually started to work because that's when the ratings for it started to do really well. An interesting idea to put it on at 5:30 on a Saturday, but it's just clearly not what primetime BBC viewership was looking was looking for. What they were looking for was Dad's Army. Don't tell them, Pike. That's what they wanted. They wanted the the safeness of those 12 episodes on loop. All right, Ash, but before we get into the episode, what we got going on in the magazine? Luke, modern consoles, maybe not the latest gen, but consoles before that. How many colours can you get them in? You can get them in all colours, can't you? That's a whole variety of things. I've seen N64s that come in Pikachu. Well, I'm not going to kink shame. But even back at the time we're talking about, the Game Boy came in a lot of different colours. But the PlayStation was just grey until it came in black. But that could mean only one thing, 
a new PlayStation is launching in 1997, it's not the PS2, it's the PS1 Neturosi. Yeah, so this is like the dev kit version of the PlayStation. Katakaris recently had this featured on one of his um, PlayStation 1 accessories things. A really, really great video if you haven't seen it, with a wonderful review of the Wu-Tang Clan controller. You really are obsessed with that Wu-Tang controller, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful bit of kit. I really want one. Um, <laughs> it's actually something I'd completely forgotten about until I saw Caddy's video. That sleek black PS1 looks Oh, so beautiful. You almost wondered, did they regret not going with that to begin with? Once you put them side by side, it makes the PlayStation 1 like standard. Just like this weird rubbish thing. It looks more expensive. I mean, it is more expensive. It's £599, but it just looks like a classier piece of kit. It's like, to go back to my white whale, the 3DO. It didn't look like a toy. It looked black and sleek and classy. So does this. But it's also front and centre of the games network, which says, With Christmas sales expected to hit an all-time high, Sony confirmed their next venture into wallet-bursting territory with the unveiling of their new black PlayStation. Called the Eurosi, it will retail for £599 and enable owners to write and develop their own software. The release date, although not yet officially set, is expected to be around February time and will come only a few weeks after the machine reaches Japanese stores. According to Paul Holman of Sony, this was purposeful. The demo scene in particular is stronger here than anywhere else, but those enthusiasts need help if the UK is to retain its position as arguably the best country in the world for development talent. True that. Concerns were expressed by Sony themselves after it became obvious that many potential games developers didn't have access to the necessary equipment because of the boom in the console market. The Eurosi will, no doubt, set that particular record straight with it predicted to shift quicker than a ferret on a rocket. You'll have to connect the machine up to a PC and have an understanding of programming language, but you can always learn, eh? Sony will be touring with the machine, visiting universities and third-party developers in particular. Quite what a bunch of philosophy students will make of it, we're not sure, but certainly for any aspiring Dave Perry likes, it's a blindingly good invention. I'm assuming they're talking about Earthworm Jim, not Captain Bandana. Hey, it could be, because when you said Dave Perry, the first name I thought of was Captain Bands. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's shiny Dave Perry, as opposed to sweaty Dave Perry. I only wore a bandana for the first like half an hour of UCP <laughs> Live because I could just feel the sweat trickling down my head. And that was a pretty cold basement. It was in January. Yeah. But the machine, which will play discs in any format, whether it be NTSC or PAL, won't be available to buy in the shops and will need to be ordered directly through Sony. A website on the net details the procedure further. But for 600 notes, the Eurosi looks like an excellent buy and proves furthermore that Sony is still very much at the forefront of video gaming. Oh, certainly yes. We'll be taking a closer look at the impact Eurosi will have in future gaming next issue. I, I believe actually some of the um, like demos that people made ended up on like official PlayStation magazine demo discs and sort of made the rounds and stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, I think it was one of the last issues of the official PlayStation magazine. They had a demo disc that was pretty much all Eurosi content. It was just all of it. It would be one of those lovely things to say, oh, I went and looked at the list of Eurosi games and here was a game that's now regarded as a modern classic. No, no. But, but you could play Harrier Attack and a Clone of Pole Position. So there's that. And it looked nicer than the main PlayStation. It did indeed. And you only had to sell your soul to Sony to get one. Before we do move into the episode itself, Ash, I did want to highlight there because I did spot that. The front cover of that issue of Games Master features 
Mr. Dominic Diamond and the Mermaid. Leanne and Teresa are there with the caption, Hello Sailor. That is because there is a seven-page article inside. Wow. Diving into Series 7. See what I did there? Diving in? Diving? Yeah. In Series 7? Or 6? Fuck it! (laughs) (laughs) Diving in to Series 6. See what I did there? No retake because I definitely didn't say Series 7 and not Series 6. Good evening and welcome to Games Master, the show that doesn't mind its sandcastle being knocked over by two attractive ladies playing football. Girls. Tonight sees the beginning of our annual footy tournament, a competition more highly regarded than the Leyland Daft Trophy. And as a tribute to football in the 70s, our event today is dominated by violence. While kicking off this episode of Series 6, we have got... Definitely Series 6. I'm pretty sure it is. According to my notes, it is. Uh, Dom has made a sandcastle that looks like a knob. Dave Perry? (laughs) It's got a little bandana on it and everything. (laughs) But Luke, do you mind your sandcastle being knocked over by two attractive ladies slash mermaids with a football? I was going to say, I'm sure Dominic Diamond wouldn't mind Dave Perry getting knocked over by a football either, whether it comes from the mermaids or not. Oh, we're counting down, aren't we? I mean, we are, what, four episodes away from the last appearance we're going to have, this one included. It's footy season, Luke. Just in time for us definitely not to restart our Everton-Liverpool rivalry. (laughs) So this is our, I believe, our last annual football tournament i don't think there is one in series seven so this is the last time we're going to get this but i've actually quite enjoyed the annual football tournaments it felt like it was something that they'd started and they weren't going to keep doing you know they did a handful of these like you know they did a street fighter tournaments all that sonic 2 tournament things like that but the football tournament they have kept up and every season when dominic diamond came back maybe it's because he just loves his football games but consistently this has been a part of the show I wish I could say it had all been good, but it hasn't. We've had some truly appalling gameplay in the annual footy tournaments, but it's always been a bit of a laugh because everyone's been into it. You know, it's always, it's clearly something that Dom loves and it's something that everyone can get behind and the footballers always have a bit of a giggle. And you're absolutely right. This is the last full tournament. We do get a football challenge in Series 7 which I believe sees the return of our guest commentator. Oh, excellent. Now, that's nice to see. You're right, like it hasn't always been the best games playing thing, but I think what I've enjoyed about the football tournaments that we've had is actually just seeing the evolution of the football game. You know, we started this thing with FIFA International Soccer, and here we are. They don't pick FIFA 97 for this tournament, although I wish they did. Instead, we went with Sega Superstar Soccer, and like it is a big old 3D football game. Like, you know, when we had it in Series 4, when they did FIFA 96 and then did FIFA International Soccer on the 3DO, And it felt like this big leap we were taking in football games. And I think that's what I've enjoyed the most uh, about these tournaments. Absolutely. I'm actually glad we did see Sega Worldwide Soccer because it's something different to FIFA. You know, we've had a lot of FIFA. We've had a lot of different kinds of FIFA. And the Sega Worldwide Soccer, it is a bit more arcadey. Let's be honest, a lot of these guys still aren't hardcore gamers, you know? Oh, God, no. I mean, we get one of them later on in this episode. But before we get to that, we do have a episode-long challenge. So we better get to it. What are we playing, Games Master? For this event, my contestant will be required to keep his wits about him as he enters an environment of unparalleled chaos. In the arcade, shoot him up, gunplay. Armed with a powerful, vibrating weapon, the contestant has one credit with which to complete all eight areas of the game. One credit means five lives. But considering the mayhem he's likely to encounter, 
I suspect he'll need every one of them if you're going to take the joystick. This is essentially like the Martin Mathers challenge from Series 5. Our lad here has got one credit to complete all of Gunblade NY in Arcade. He's got five lives on that thing, and he's got to play through the whole game. I just love these challenges. Although I do feel that this one has only been chosen because he's armed with a powerful vibrating weapon, Luke. Yeah, this is a, I don't want to say a, a backdoor way, but it's essentially just a way for them to make lots of wanking jokes. About numb hands, sorvis, numb hands, choking chickens, the whole works. The game itself, hey, it's another Sega big arcade shooty game. They were producing quite a few of them at the time and was released in 1995 in North America, 96 in Japan. It was, by comparison to the Virtua Cop games, hard as arseholes. It was a much, much tougher game. And you do kind of see that here. And a lot of it was primarily by the style of game because Virtua Cop is very smooth. You run through. You are ground-based for the most part. And stationary. And stationary. This game, you're in a helicopter. You are always moving. Constantly moving. There are reports from this game of people getting motion sickness from playing it as well because you are not stopping in this at all. It's constantly swooping around in and out. This is one of those games where I would have been so excited to play. Like, you know, put myself into this period of time. So excited to play would have put me quid in and it would have been dead so so quickly because it's like seeing that first level it's very difficult to keep track of what you're supposed to be aiming at and what's just an explosion in your face amazingly given when it was produced there was no saturn version i don't think you could have done a satisfying saturn version of this like you know what i mean like it like it, I, the whole you know appeal of this game is having that massive gun to, to hold this isn't like virtual cop where you've got a nice light gun in your hand this is a big, chunky bit of plastic that you're holding on to. Even so, I'm still surprised. It's funny that you say, you know, it was all about the experience because it did eventually get a home release for the Wii. Bundled with its sequel, LA Machine Guns, Rage of the Machines. But because it was also released, you know, after uh, a certain thing that happened in 2001, the, the World Trade Centers were removed from Gunblade NY. This game is very, very hard. This game is very, very hard. And like when it came out, like few places really praised it. But I think like the overall takeaway for it is like while this is good, it's not as good as Time Crisis. And I think it's like Time Crisis is a bit more, again, a bit more stationary. Also, it's got that pedal motion to it as well. So it's just it feels a bit more like a full-fledged game as opposed to this, which is just hold down shoot. Because you don't have to reload on this, which Dave Perry mentions later. So you're just holding down that fire button and just throwing it around the screen. This is a regression in gameplay because Virtua Cop, you had the reload, tilt off the side of the screen, time crisis, you got the foot pedal, the duck, the cover mechanic. This, as a game goes, has the same gameplay mechanic of one of those water gun things that you used to get at theme parks where you just kind of like put 10p or 20p in and the water jet just starts and runs for as long as your 20p lasts. So I can see why it played second fiddle to Time Crisis, even though it perhaps offered a slightly more unique experience, and by that I mean motion sickness. Okay, this game obviously needs a very strong wrist, so please welcome today's master games player, the aptly named Mr. Paul Ram. Welcome to the show, Paul. Now, Paul, uh, like many Channel 4 television presenters, you spent some time in the Territorial Army. Yeah, that's right. What kind of stuff did you learn in that? Um... Camouflage, ambush, one-on-one um, -on -one combat, disarming and killing dogs, stuff like that. <laughs> and killing dogs? Yeah. Is that something you've had to use in later life? No. No. That's, a, that's always a first thing. Now, Paul, we did say you need strong wrists for this. Have you been doing anything in particular to strengthen yours? 
Uh, yeah, I've been chucking my chicken. Right, because you are from a farm, aren't Yeah, that's right, you yeah, I live, live on, a farm. You yeah. live on a farm. Your nickname is Bruce. Yeah. Why is that? Well, um, a couple of friends from Wolverhampton named me Bruce because my haircut is like on the Doritos advert. Uh-huh. Bruce Lee's got the same kind of haircut. Right. But probably the same reason why I get called John Bon Jovi by my friends for no, that I, same... I was going to call you Penfold. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Penfold, yeah. right. Very good, very funny. Well, we will have a contestant on who is funny one of these days, but it's a very good attempt. So we mentioned earlier that the reason why this game is being featured on the show is so Dom can make lots of wanking jokes. As it turns out, that's not the only thing that he finds funny in this episode. Because it's not just wanking he thinks is hilarious, it's also the murder of dogs he finds very, very funny. I don't think it's the actual act of murdering dogs that he finds funny. It's just saying he's a dog killer that he finds funny. Well, this guy really, I, I don't know how much of this was deliberate, how much they asked him to say it. Maybe we'll find out in the book. It's getting closer and closer. But we've got Paul Ram, who was once in the Territorial Army. He learned about camouflage, ambush, one-on-one -on -one unarmed combat, disarming people, and killing dogs. That sort of thing. Dom's like, have you ever had to kill a dog? And he's like, no, no, no. And Dom's like, well, there's always a first time. <laughs> I'm just like, jeez. This becomes a runner throughout the whole episode as well. It, we don't go a segment without Dom bringing up that this man playing this game also murders dogs. I would struggle. If I was interviewing someone for this podcast and, you know, they said, oh, what do you do with your spare time? Oh, I, you know, I'm also in the Territorial Army. Oh, cool. What sort of skills do you learn? And they go, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and how to kill a dog. I would veer between not wanting to even acknowledge it and also just going, oh, cool. Sorry, can we rewind a bit? I, I mean, really? Yes, it does come back. It becomes the running gag and it kind of like disarms the follow on, which is, oh, he's been preparing for this game by choking his chicken because he's from a farm, Luke. Yeah, I love Dom's thing. <laughs> they were like, because you work on a farm, don't you? He's like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I do. And that's why I thought the whole killing dogs things was a big setup for Dom, because I think Paul knows what he's doing. Paul, like in this interview, calls him Penfold. He knows exactly what he's doing, which is so weird because he's such a quiet man. He's not as sort of like, you know, when we get like Ravi in next week's episode, which is like, I am playing this character and I'm going to do a run of jokes. Paul is doing the same number of jokes, but he's not delivering them in the same way. And it's a very disarming way of doing these sorts of jokes. So you can't, it's a blurred line of, are you just part of the crew? Are you someone that Dom is friends with? Or are you just a punter that's applied for the show, but you're just genuinely very funny? The Penfold line did make me laugh, although I also laughed in a puzzled way at his nickname. This is from a series of adverts that Doritos did. Doritos sponsored ITV movies, mm -hmm. and they had a series of adverts where they would have a still image of an actor. They had one for Bruce Lee, which is what Paul mentions here. They did them with Aubrey Hepburn, John Wayne. Um, they did one for Planet of the Apes, Errol Flynn, uh, Lassie. And it was one of those things, you know, where they just replace the mouth and they just do like, you superimpose someone's mouth over it, eating Doritos while saying classic lines. And it just says, Doritos sponsors ITV at the movies. I remember all that. It's more that, one, he doesn't have hair like Bruce Lee. I'm sorry, he may have at one point, he definitely doesn't now. But also, Bruce Lee, you know Bruce Lee, Luke, from those Dorito adverts. <laughs> oh, I'm old. That was the thing, basically. Like when, I was, when he said Dorito, I was like, okay, YouTube, Bruce Lee, Doritos. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I remember this thing. Yeah, it's like rather than just saying Bruce Lee, 
it's just like, no, 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 that lad from the Doritos advert. He might have had a film career if he hadn't been doing those adverts. I I think his hair is Bruce Lee-esque. I, I could see how people could make that connection. Kind of in the same, you know, when we had Kingpin on a few weeks back, where it's just like, he was bored, so he just got called Kingpin. Your hair's a bit like Bruce Lee from those Doritos adverts, so Bruce Lee you are now, mate. Yeah, okay. I will say as well, that Doritos advert with Bruce Lee has not aged well. You want trouble? This is trouble. I mean it this time. I'm going to get very angry. Very angry. Oh, I can bet none of those adverts where it involves anyone of any ethnicity that isn't white has not aged well at all. Oh, yeah. And talking through this one is Dave Perry. Dave, tell us something we don't know about you already. About me already? What, um... Oh, let's have a think. Well, apart from the fact that I've been country's top 50 bachelors, um, that I'm rich, probably the best games player in the country, that kind of thing. That kind of thing. I think you know it all. That will suffice. Okay, Dave, let's move on then to any tips you've got for Paul on the game. Okay, well, the thing is that... uh, this game has been made by the same people that made the Virtual Cop series. But, so when the, when the baddies are targeted, the target does turn red when they're about to shoot you. But the thing with this game is it turns red a whole lot quicker. So you haven't got half the time, but you've got unlimited ammo. You haven't got to reload on this game. So just pump on full of lead. Dave Perry is in the booth because, of course, it is. it's a serious challenge. And this is one of my favorite awkward Dave Perry Dom interactions, which is Dom asks him, like, hey, tell me something. We don't know anything about you before. And Dave pauses, and you can see the cogs whirring as he tries to think of something clever, and he doesn't say something clever, and Dom's disdain for Dave Perry's terrible banter is palpable. This was not a setup for a fall for Dave Perry. This was actually a real soft lob. This was, come on, Dave, just say something funny. Just say something you don't know. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I was once tried for singeing the King of Spain's beard. I once farted while running past the Queen. Anything, something. A Rick Henderson, a Kirk Ewing would have had five in the barrel for these. You know, my uncle crashed into 500 cars. Anything like that. But Dave's just like, oh, I'm I'm incredibly rich. I'm a top 50 bachelor, uh, sponsored by THQ by the looks of it. That sort of thing. Dave, you can be funny. You can make witty zingers. You can do these one-liners. Well, obviously, we don't see everything going on. This doesn't feel like it was a mean-spirited like lead. It was just a line. It was a feed. Yeah, it was a feeder line. As I said, like if he'd, he'd have done the same line to Kirk Ewing, he'd have done the same line to Rick Henderson, and a pair of them would have had something to say. He'd have probably done this to Derek Lynch. Derek Lynch would have had something to say. But Dave Perry is just on a different show to everyone else. He is the square peg of this round hole of a show, and he just doesn't fit in. We've only got him for a handful more episodes. And while there's part of me that gets a perverse pleasure out of the awkwardness between Dom and Dave, I'm now ready for it to be over. Yeah, just let's get past it and move on. Although, I will say, Dave, your little fact about this game is completely wrong. <laughs> Dave says the game was developed by the same people as Virtua Cop. And no. But by that he means Sega. Come on, Dave is this big games guy. Virtua Cop 1, 2 and 3 were developed by AM2. Gunblade was developed by AM3. AM2 was known for the Virtua series. Virtua Fighter, Virtua Racer, Virtua Cop. AM3, Virtual On, Sega Rally, Sega Sonic, later Crazy Taxi... I get what you're saying. It's a Sega game, but that's a bit like going, 
oh, well, you know, this will play like Sonic the Hedgehog because it's developed by the same people. I think it's, for me, it's more the same way that, like, you know, you say uh, Capcom made Resident Evil and Mega Man. Be like, oh, these are the same people that made Mega Man. Just so, like, Capcom et al. And I think the reason why he's just saying it's virtual code because it's got the same targeting system which is that a target starts much larger and then it starts yellow and then it goes closer and onto the target you're supposed to be aiming for and goes red. And if it goes red, that's when they'll fire at you. I think that's why Dave Perry made the virtual cop and said, like, it's the same people. I'm probably being overly harsh, but I didn't even have to look that crap up. That's the thing is I was just like, no, hang on, that's a different term development wing altogether. And it just irks me because it immediately follows him to him talking about how great he is. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he's like, I'm one of the greatest games players in the country. Uh, but his basic advice here is just, you don't need to reload, so just pump everything full of lead. You've got one credit to do this game, which is aka five lives. I do appreciate the at least acknowledge how absolute nails this game is by not going, it's one life and you're done, because otherwise, bloody hell, this challenge would have been over before David finished being wrong. Yeah, I mean, and really there's not a whole lot to say about this first part of the challenge anyway, because it is literally just your man Paul shoots a bunch of stuff, he clears through the first area and doesn't lose a life, and Dom's ending line is... We're going to leave him there as his wrists take the greatest strain since the last episode of Baywatch. I will say on that first level... He does obtain a triple S rating, which is pretty damn impressive. That's as high as it gets, I think. I was going to say, what? I mean, he didn't take a hit. He killed everything in sight. He did pretty well for it. Oi, that bloke's Nick River the Bears trousers. These are exclusive pictures of the first golf simulation game for the Nintendo 64. St. Andrew's Golf uses the little stick on the joypad to act as a club, providing a more authentic sense of impact when you whack your balls. The further you pull back, the stronger your swing gets. The game is slated for release early next year. Our first item in the news this week is the first golf game for the N64. Pity we'll never see it. Nope, it never leaves Japan apart from on import and more recently a roughly translated ROM hack, which I'm sure the amazing Chuff has played. It's a really cool system though. Like Dom talks about it there, which is that you use the joystick, you pull it back when you swing it forward to do your golf swing i think that's a really smart use of the n64 like i don't know why they didn't employ that for mario golf i'm wondering if it's something to do with the accuracy of that little joystick like nowadays if you grabbed your standard xbox style joystick or even your playstation style you've got quite a fine degree of movement there with the thumb and so it'd be very easy to pull down and let go I mean, we all know with those those Nintendo 64 controllers, as especially with some of them where they are now, that stick loses its um, rigidity quite easily. And of course, Ashes is a game based on golf, so I know you're really desperate to hear any facts that I might have for you about St. Andrew's Golf and about the the, the course itself. So I've I've got it here for you. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me just prepare myself. Uh, So uh, the old course will always be associated with the Open Championships, having hosted it more times than any other venue, with the first being back in 1873 and then every five years since 1895. Largely designed by Mother Nature as opposed to course architects, it has some unique characteristics you rarely find anywhere, such as the widest opening and closing fairways in golf, double greens, challenging slopes, faster fairways than regular golf club greens and deep bunkers. Although the old course can boast several truly memorable holes, the signature hole is probably the 17th par 4 road hole, starting with a tee shot for the optimum line needs to carry over the corner and out of bounds fence. For the second shot, golfers are then left with the extremely difficult long approach to a small green protected by a deep bunker in front and a stone wall behind that runs parallel. 
The Tichon on the 17th is almost famous for having the old course hotel so close to the ideal driving line, meaning that not a day goes by when the hotel roof is not struck by an errant drive. So there you go. That is copy that I once wrote for golfbreaks.com. Do you miss that job? I do not. I do, I do miss the free trips they gave me, but I don't miss writing copy about a sport I've got f- all interest in. You were very convincing. I genuinely started to nod off a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Watching golf has that effect on me, so you really kind of captured the essence of the sport. You're very welcome. I'd also forgotten just how comfortable this chair is when you put it into full <laughs> recline. I'm remembering why I bought it now. <laughs> Because it never left Japan, there isn't much about this game out there. However, I did find a review from 64 Magazine who reviewed it on import. Uh, In import price, it was 70 quid, which is especially galling because they did not look upon it favourably. And I quote from the end of the review, St Andrew's Golf is a pretty sad attempt at a golf game. The control method is badly flawed. The game looks like a Super NES leftover. And the 12 golfers you can choose from all seem to be lacking in the joint department. On top of all that, the masses of Japanese text make most of the game options indecipherable, and to cap it all, the ball isn't even round. No guts, and definitely no glory. And their rating system is somewhat bizarre, because while the overall is a percentage, the graphics, audio, gameplay, and lasting challenge are rated in ends. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm going to assume out of five ends, because four categories, five ends, it adds up to 25% total per category. Anyway, graphics, 1N. I mean, the title screen that I did see when doing some Google searching for it was very SNES-like, like Mega Drive-like, I would actually say. Well, audio, 1N. Yeah. Gameplay, 2Ns. Lasting challenge, 2Ns. Overall, 25%. Friggin' hell. Crikey, that's not very polite at all. Summary. The word mediocre was made for this feeble effort. But 25% is not a mediocre score. That is a damning score. I reckon they might have got up to about 50% if they could have read any of the text. Bradford's IMAX cinema has just announced an extension of their super widescreen attraction special effects. The movie takes the audience on a journey behind the scenes of some of the biggest special effects films ever. Not just cack ones like Jumanji, but classics like King Kong and blockbusters like Independence Day. Also featured is a tantalising glimpse of the upcoming special edition Star Wars movies out next spring. If you haven't already been, grab your old person's rail card and head up to Bradford. Special effects runs until March, and it's probably the only reason to go to Bradford. Our second new story here, this is a pretty cool one. There's clearly like a movie that's being shown at uh, uh, IMAX cinemas. Back in when IMAX cinemas just showed you short films as opposed to full motion length movies. Uh, but this is basically just like a little behind the scenes documentary for things like Jumanji and King Kong and Independence Day. But really, I think the reason why most people went to go and see this were for those sneak peeks at next year's Star Wars Special Edition re-releases. Also, Luke, this may be the only time in Games Master history that we talk excitedly about Bradford. Could be. I mean, this is one of the only reasons to go to the area. But man, I am excited for next year when we get those Star Wars Special Editions because, oh, you want to talk about that little farty box, that little gold farty box that had them in. Loved that little set. 
I'm excited to talk about them, but looking back at those special editions now, Farty Box is entirely an appropriate descriptive. Oh man, some of those effects still really hold up that Jabba scene. Just don't, man. (laughs) The worst thing is, is no matter how many different special editions we get, how many different revisions we get, either in the pre or post Lucas, that Jabba scene still looks shit. It looks so crap. I do just want to say this Anything Can Happen documentary is still considered a piece of lost media. While some of the footage has reappeared in different documentaries and on special features, the entire piece has never been released. There's like some really, really wonky VHS off-screen caps out there, but for something that was produced in the full-frame IMAX, it is sadly still missing. Yes, Pissed is the oh-so-hilarious name of a satirical CD-ROM that is everything the best-selling title missed wasn't. Instead of a beautiful island, the action takes place in a kind of hideous run-down holiday camp, closely resembling Bradford. The star of the game, John Goodman, plays Piss's unsavoury monarch. All the world's a game, and you're a pest. No. This is Malcolm Basky. The, the gameplay emulates Mist's puzzle stroke mystery type genre, but above all, Piss tries to be funny, which uh, unfortunately it isn't. Original pillar. And our last news item here is about the um, Bucky O'Hare is funny parody of Mist Pissed. I do remember this game coming out. I remember a friend of mine at school saying it was really, really funny. I've never played it myself. Uh, have you? I have not, but I also remember it coming out. I remember some adverts and I remember it being around because I also remember recognising pictures of John Goodman from that there Roseanne series. Yeah, got John Goodman in it. You've got to think it's pretty good. And it's it's a fascinating little tale as well because this is made by uh, some people called Parity Interactive who had these big grand designs of being, uh, being the national lampoon of video games where they would just release a series of parody games based on popular franchises or popular video games, things like that. They only did about five in the end, Pissed being the first one. They followed that up with Star Warped, and then they followed that up with The X-Fools, and my favourite of the titles, Microshaft Windblows 98. They were really, really just going, we've got a lot of puns left over. We don't know which one we prefer, so we're just going to use all of the puns yeah they did do a sequel piss driven and there was a demo of it released like in some later editions of piss but it was never like fully released as far as i could tell like the idea of it and you know the the reviews at the time were it's just not funny like it's a game that thinks it's hilarious but it isn't i do like one of the central conceits which is mist was this massive game Tens of thousands of millions of people visited Mist Island. What does the island look like after all those tens and thousands of millions of people visited? So there is actually some kind of social commentary there to be made about American consumerism. And I'm sure you could write a funny game about it. But this probably isn't it. No, this feels more like latter-day National Lampoon movies, which is just where, like, the National Lampoon thing is slapped onto a lot of really bad comedy movies. But hey, it was a good payday for John Goodman and also was the top-selling parody product of 1996. Any day that John Goodman gets a good payday is a good day in my books. It's a saving grace of Blues Brothers 2000. (laughs) Sadly, this and the games that followed it were not enough to save parody entertainment, 
their parent company, Palladium Interactive, were bought by the learning company in 1998, who proceeded to dissolve Parity Interactive before their sequel title, Pissed Driven, was finished, making them an ex-Parity. I'll let, I'll let that one hang in the air for a little moment. Let it fester. <laughs> Mate, you had, you, had, you had your golf ramble. I've got my Monty Python jokes. Welcome back. Paul Ram has been given the duration of the show to play right through Gumblet on only one credit. He's coming to the end of the second stage here. If you look at the top left-hand corner of the screen, you can still see he's got those five lives left. He's been playing very well, Dave. So we cut back to Paul. He's nearly <laughs> the end of the next level. I'm moving on. And he still oh, has a, and he still has a <laughs> lot of life at this board. And he beats that first boss with an S grade. So he's going on to the next level of this as we're going to cut to our next challenge. Ah, yes. It's that time of the year again when football comes home to Games Master. This year, I've selected the Saturn game, Worldwide Soccer, to test our players' virtual skills. Each match will consist of one three-minute half, and I'll be looking out for players to make use of the game's impressive array of moves, including shimmies, fakes, and Beckham-style chips. Let's hit the park! Rejoice! Football has come home! Yeah, there's two fun little references here. Football coming home from Euro 96. But the other one is making reference to those Beckham-style chips. I wrote when I was like, has that happened in our timeline? So I went and I looked and I was like, oh, is it this one? They were talking about the the, the charity shield chip that he did where he scored the third goal in their 4-0 win. Or is it that Beckham goal? And Beckham saw Sullivan off his line. expect Eric Cantona to do that but he would have admired it David Beckham surely an England player of the future scores a goal that will be talked about and replayed for years I would wager it's probably more the Charity Shield one but it obviously depends on when they filmed it but they are so close together like that Charity Shield game was on August 11th the the, the halfway line goal was August 17th so it's likely like he's just in the public eye and he's just known for doing those sorts of things. I'll be honest, I just thought maybe he already had a sponsorship deal with McCain's. <laughs> it could be that. It really does depend on when they film this. Because if they film this in July, then all of that research and what I just said was actually for now. But as we already discussed, this is not using FIFA. This is using the much more new and probably paid for placement of Sega Worldwide Soccer 1997 football game released by Sega for the Sega Saturn. It had three more titles in this series to follow, Sega Worldwide Soccer 98, still on the Sega Saturn, and two editions of Sega Worldwide Soccer 2000 for the Dreamcast. But this was Sega's attempt to kind of build their own FIFA. It didn't work. But it wasn't a terrible game. No, and like they need, well they didn't know this at the time, but they will need that because the Saturn was such a bugger to build things for that when it came to the Dreamcast, a lot of those people didn't go back. They didn't get EA games on the Dreamcast. EA refused to make games for the Dreamcast because the Saturn was such a pain to do this. So the Dreamcast didn't get a FIFA game. So they needed their own licensed football games. 
So it's a good job they actually started them here as opposed to getting to the Dreamcast and then trying to work out what it is. It's a shame because the Dreamcast was considerably easier to develop for as well. But oh well, hindsight 2020 and all that. It was in itself a sequel to Victory Goal, which was one of the titles that launched with the console. It sold pretty well because it was a football game on the Saturn. While Victory Goal was met with somewhat mixed responses, this game was met much more positively. GameSpot said it may be the best soccer game ever released. That's fairly typical for GameSpot. Uh, GamePro called it a completely fresh must-play gaming experience. And Sega Saturn magazine, in a completely unbiased line, said it was perhaps the best soccer sim yet. I'm sure they've got no dog in that fight. Okay, for the first round of our footy tournament, we went looking for two of the footballing stars of tomorrow. That's why they're not Scottish. Please welcome English Under-21 Internationals, Richard Rufus and Michael Dubery. Thanks for coming on, Richard. Now, Michael, I want to talk about the game you're playing tonight. Now, uh, Michael, you're playing as Italy yeah. tonight. What kind of game are we going to see from you? Um, good passing game, nice attacking, nice flair, you know I mean, a lot of skill. Yep. Not much, not much to ask for, really, is it? No. <laughs> what about you, uh, Richard? Are we going to see the same? Well, yeah, basically just a passing game and loads of movement off my front two strikers, hopefully. So we're going to do a little bit different with this year's uh, football tournaments. Rather than bring in some big names, although next week they do try to bring in a big name and that doesn't quite work out for them. Instead, they're looking to stars of the future. Un- England under-21s we've got here, Rich Grufus and Michael Dubery. I don't think there's much point in us looking at what they actually say in the, the little chat with Dominic Diamond because they don't really have much of anything to say. I like they, they do play up to the idea of treating this as a real thing to know. Oh, it's a passing game with the flair and skills, this that much. However, individually, some fairly interesting stuff to talk about. I mean, there's a, a massive bankrupt elephant in the room <laughs> with at least one of them. Let's start with Michael, shall we? Who I will say has the best surname, Dubery. Dubry, great name, great solid name. name. He started playing in the Premiership with Chelsea, played for Leeds United and Reading, played for your hometown, there we go. Certainly did, that's where the name jumps out to me. He was interestingly eligible to play for two international sides. He could play for England through birth or Montserrat through his parents' birth. Well, you know, he did actually field some offers from Montserrat. He was just like, no, I, I want to play for a team that might win. Sorry, yeah. I mean, my dream's always been to play for England. <laughs> he turned them down twice, like, with the offer. And it's kind of a bit of a kick in the teeth that he never played for England. Yeah. He kept holding on to that dream, though. He now runs a mentoring, coaching and leadership business. So he's doing pretty well for himself. Uh, I wonder how old Richard Rufus is getting on these days. Well, you know, he also had a fairly good career. Uh, He did have a series of injury setbacks, undergoing various knee operations. And those knee injuries would come back to haunt him and be the eventual reason why he retired from football in 2004 at the age of just 29. But, you know, if you've got all that time on your hands, probably got some really good things you could invest that into. In invest being the key word there. Yeah, because in December 2013, he was declared bankrupt after a £6 million failed investment, which cost his church £5 million. We then skip forward two years to November 2015, where he was branded a fraudster by a civil court judge following an £8 million loss to investors. 
as a result of him operating a £16 million Ponzi scheme involving over 100 investors, including members of his family and congregation member of churches he had attended. He pocketed more than £3 million of their money to fund his lifestyle, and the insolvency service described the case as one of the worst ever. He was given a 15-year bankruptcy restriction order and, unsurprisingly, at the end of November, left his roles with Charlton Athletic in the club's academy and the community trust, following being a somewhat unsavoury character. So, cool, cool. That's a, that's, a hell of a, that's a hell of a footnote. Oh, wait, there's another one. There, there's a bit more because he's currently awaiting trial for currency exchange fraud, which has been going on since 2019, but delayed for various reasons. Like COVID. Yeah, like COVID. <laughs> but like January 2020, they announced it's being delayed for another 11 months. So we're still waiting on this trial that he's got going on here. But I had quite the journey reading through this man's Wikipedia page because it was just like, oh, you know, he got six caps with the England under 21, so he spent his entire career at Charlton Athletic. And then I was reading through his time at Charlton and it felt like it had been written by him or a family member because it's really dramatized of like the sort of goals that he scored and these really impactful moments that he had with it. And then you get to the second half of his Wikipedia page and it is just all of this. I was like, well, this surely wasn't written by him. This was definitely written by someone else. It is one of those moments where you scroll down and you have to double check you didn't accidentally click on a link in the Wikipedia page and go to someone else's. It is just like, oh, football, 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 massive fraud. Yeah, like you weren't playing wiki races or something and accidentally could have found yourself somewhere else. No, this is genuinely just one person's Wikipedia page. It's not quite Yuri Geller's. But it really was a real like handbrake pulled up as you were just like, nope, we're going into something else now. Oh, speaking of Yuri Geller, I feel I should apologize for my rant about Yuri Geller last week. I think I went easy on him. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot left on that cutting room floor that will no, no one will ever hear. I did cut the bits where I'm just like, if for some insane reason he heard this, he possibly could send us a cease and desist because he will do that. He will do it. He went after Pokemon. I'm amazed he went after Pokemon because the Pokemon was a genuine psychic. You'd have thought he'd have been after the positive press. Okay, that's great. Well, if you want to see who wins the battle of England's young guns, plus find out how Territorial Army dog killer Paul is getting on Ungumbly. Join us after this break. <laughs> This Christmas, Safeway have introduced over 1,000 Q-Busters. Fancy making that poor man wear a penny. Q-Busters are specially trained staff employed to help out all round the store. I don't believe it, he's got a twin. And help shorten queues wherever they develop. This is even spookier than I thought, Mum. Is a triplet. Q-Busters at Safeway. It's Curry's best ever Christmas choice, with an interest-free option on all products over £200. Thousands of gift ideas at Curry's lowest prices on the spot. For your biggest and best Christmas ever, only Curry's bring you all this. What do I expect from my conditioner? To leave my hair looking this soft, this healthy, all the way to the tips. I used to cut off split ends, now I hardly have any. The pro-vitamin in Pantene's Pro-V conditioner penetrates deep down, while its advanced formula protects and conditions your hair all the way to the tips. So my hair's shiny, soft and manageable. Pantene Pro-V conditioner, for hair that looks so healthy it shines. Split ends. I don't worry about them. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the studio show. Today we look at the work of emerging British artists. Fascinating. Tell me, where do you find your inspiration? Well, the easels come from Early Learning Center. Of course, at Early Learning Center, there's everything for emerging artists. So this Christmas, start early. And this is so sculptural. It's soft stuff and I haven't started yet. Oh, of course. This Christmas, start early, where smarter parents go shopping. It's brilliant. It's indispensable. No one can afford to miss the Daily Mail's TV guide. Now there's more. Tomorrow, the Daily Mail brings you a free discerning viewer's guide to the programs you'll really want to watch this Christmas. There's so much in it for all the family, you'd better ask Santa for a TV of your own. The Daily Mail Christmas TV guide, free tomorrow. No TV should be without it. to Games Master, where this show is more packed than the packed World Cup of 1980 pack. We have got England Young Guns and Michael Dubery and Richard Rufus about to do battle in the first semi-final of our annual footy tournament. Paul, who has been trained in the Territorial Army to kill dogs, is playing Gunblade as we speak now. This is a very personal situation for me now. Uh, you may wonder what it's like to feel standing next a television legend. Jim Rosenthal, how does it feel? I'm just wondering where he was, to be quite he's, honest. Uh, he's the guy in the glasses, Jim. Okay. This is me. Okay. Thank I'm honoured. I'm honoured to be with you. Right, Jim, uh, what kind of game are you hoping to see tonight from our two players? I've been with uh, Richard and Michael out the back, and uh, it's going to be fiercely competitive. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of research on this game. Mm -hmm. Fiercely competitive. They really have worked very hard. And don't ask me for a prediction. We cut back from the ad break to a genuine bit of a thrill this i really really like this because we don't have dave doing the commentary we don't have rick doing the commentary we don't have kirk doing the commentary no we've got a genuine legit football commenter providing our analysis here we've got jim from the itv coverage he does all the world cup stuff 
it was genuinely like when it came on i and couldn't believe my eyes. Jim Rosenthal. Dom is having a proper personal moment. How does it feel to stand next to a television legend? He asks Jim in a moment that falls flat on its fucking ass. <laughs> it's horrendous because Jim, hearing the setup, is looking behind him for someone else, and he he's doing his own punchline, and by doing so, misses Dom's. Yeah, they cross the streams, Luke. They cross <laughs> the streams. It only gets worse because then he says, "Oh, I've been with the boys out the back," and some Dom turns into and goes, "I don't need to hear any more about that." But Jim's already talking over him. Jim's already saying something. Jim misses all of these setups and all of these punchlines. Jim's there to commentate on football. He's not there for knob gags. He's not, no. But it was generally wonderful to see because, like, ITV was the coverage of choice uh, in the Owen household. We preferred the ITV coverage to the Beeb coverage. So he was a voice I was very very familiar with when it came to football i mean just to give the very very brief stats straight from his wikipedia page eight fifa world cups three rugby world cups two olympic games and 150 formula one races he was an authoritative voice of sport well still is i mean he's still around he's not dead yeah I didn't know this, actually. His son is Tom Rosenthal in from Friday Night Dinners. I genuinely didn't know that until I was looking up earlier. Yeah, he actually made a guest appearance in one of those episodes, I think. Um, His voice as a Grand Prix commentator typecasting. So we've got Michael playing as Italy and Richard playing as Holland. And I don't know about you, I pretty confident in saying Michael is the better player at this game. I think Michael gets it a little bit more than what Richard does. I mean, there's at one point where Richard is running the wrong way, but I don't think that's anything to hold against him. It's just, you know, sometimes when you play a game for the first time or even for the second time, I just get the feeling that Michael is more comfortable at this game than Richard is. I mean, we're in our single three-minute half, which doesn't really make it a half. It just makes it a three-minute match. That baffled me when it came to the Games Master introduction of like, we're playing a single three-minute half. And I'm like, well, it's not a half. It's it's just a match. No, it's a, it's a single half. But that doesn't make a hole, Luke. The penalties makes it the hole, I guess. Oh, the penalties made it an absolute hole. But this game, for the most part, is all Italy. They get the kickoff. They take the first run on goal. The referee is very lax in this match. There were some high boots in this game. He has been set to blinds. Like, they have turned all the referee AI off. Italy just stay on the offence, and Dom curses it by going, oh, Holland's defence are really, oh, shit, they've conceded a goal. Whoops. Yeah, Michael scores very early in here, and that's then when you get the moment where Rich starts running the wrong way of the pitch, which Dom makes fun of. And then Michael gets this massively long shot, which was very clearly him pressing the wrong button because he didn't realise he was going to get the ball. He was pressing the tackle button that ended up being a long shot. Richard eventually gets something on here. He gets like this huge, huge long shot that Don gets very excited about, but it sort of doesn't really lead to anything. But then Richard chips it over and equalizes. This is a, a genuine surprise. That ball was just casually acquainted with gravity at that point. It felt, I don't know whether it was a frame rate stutter on the Saturn or just the physics having a bit of a wonk, but that ball was part helium on that. It just kind of went it was a proper soft lob the softest of lobs the goalkeeper never thought that was going in no uh, but unfortunately it did do which means we are going into penalties Mm, that always ends well (laughs) well it doesn't end well for michael unfortunately misses his first one richard scores michael scores richard scores michael scores richard scores michael scores richard scores michael misses and then richard scores And Richard, arguably the less good player at the game, is the one that wins. 
And to be honest with you, he doesn't look thrilled about it. Yep, it means he has to stick around for the second bout of filming, probably later that day. But at least, you know, maybe he'll get to meet Stan Collymore, so could go really well for him. Richard will be back for the final, Michael won't, but also won't go bankrupt and be accused of fraud. (laughs) Okay, congratulations, Richard. Commiserations, Uh, Michael, I'll I'll start with you. Good goal that you scored. Do you want to talk us through it? Well, um, we've been working on, like, good passing movements and that. Worked our way into the box. And the striker's been on form in training and in pre-matches. He's got a nice turn and a great strike in top corner. Richard, when we came in the penalties, there was a lot of them going in the top right-hand corner um, as, as we were looking at it. It came down to that final penalty. You know, you only had to score it to go through to the final. What were you thinking as you were running up? Well, I was thinking all my penalties like went top corner or straight down the middle. And I thought I never went bottom left corner. So I thought I might as well give it a try. And lucky enough, I sent um, his goalkeeper the wrong way. And there you go. It was an in, inter- almost an intellectual game of cat and mouse chess to kind of put about four cliches together in the same sentence. Even in the post-match, like neither of them just feel that enthused. Like I know we've not really had a lot of like footballers on this show that have been mega charismatic, but at least they feel like they've had something to say. I just feel like neither of these two offered up really anything for Dom to work with. I mean, they're both young. Footballers in general are used to speaking to people with microphones because they get interviewed pre-match, they get interviewed post-match, they go around. They, they're always talking with journalists, particularly you know when they're caught coming out of hotels with people that aren't their wives. They're used to working with the press. These kids are young. It's almost like they are just normal kids on Games Master. They don't have the gift of the gab yet. No. Clearly, Richard develops that gift of the gab. I mean, you know, he can talk money out of everyone by, <laughs> by the end of his career. These two lads are not as good at this as Mad Dog was on that Quake Challenge. Absolutely not. Nowhere near as good. I mean, speaking of dogs, they're not even as good as Dog Killer over there on the Gunblade machine. (laughs) Okay, now, a message for young people at home. I am a highly trained professional, and you shouldn't attempt to try presenting in your own home. As an illustration of what can happen if you do... Let's go over to Dave and find out how we're doing on Gunblade. Bloody hell, Dominic Diamond here with one of our final slams we're going to get on Dave Perry, where he's talking about like, hey, you viewers at home, I'm a highly trained professional, so you shouldn't try presenting at home. Let's find out what happens when an untrained person does. Oi, Dave, what's going on? Like, fucking hell, Tom. He's, he's literally over there and you're saying he's well shit at his job. Earlier was a soft lob for something he could have given back. Now it's like, Nope, I gave you your chance today. <laughs> Bam. You are cack, mate. And I want to let you know that you're cack. I've got four more episodes of you. I'd like to pretend you're not in earshot, but we both know you are. And, you know, to his credit, Dave does an admirable job of recapping what's happened here, which, bit of drama, Ash, he's lost one of his lives. It happened on Area 4, so he's halfway through the game, which is not too bad because this game is hard. His hand is numb. There's motion sickness. It's not an easy challenge. He's trying to shoot a guy as he falls off the ship and he fails to notice another man taking aim. Tries to shoot the projectile out of the air, which is the only thing you can really do to defend yourselves in those situations, but it's too late. Yeah, he just sort of lost concentration for a brief moment because fatigue will be setting in at this point because it's a heavy old gun with a lot of motion behind it. Gotta be absolutely knackering trying to do through this. And he beats the boss in Area 4, but does take another hit in it. And Dave makes the point, like, and that sucks for him because he's now going into the hardest level of the game. And he's taken two of his hits. He's only got three lives left. And it's not looking good for old 
dog the dog killer it's not looking great at all even his point average is going down by the time he gets to the end of the last round before we go into the reviews he started at a triple s rating he's down to just an s a couple of playstation games this week kicking off with victory boxing 97 two grown men slap each other wearing just a pant this time they've given us a gym where you can actually train a boxer between bouts the better your gym, the better your boxer will actually improve. Also, there's a promoter, and he will get you fights above just the one rank above your own. Basically, you can fight the number one rank and therefore make more money and make your gym better. If you stand there and just rapidly punch, you're just going to go down in one hit. You've got to conserve your energy, you've got to block, you've got to wait, you've got to dodge, and you can even taunt. It's just got everything you need. And it looks a lot better than before, with a lot more strategy, with your promoter and everything. Up first in the reviews, victory boxing for the PlayStation. It's two men slapping each other, but just in their pants. Tell me about it. I review wrestling for a living. Rick and Ed essentially just talking through the game itself, the gym mode and the promoter that helps with your fights and that makes your gyms and your fighters better. Ed seems to really like this game. He's really, really revving this up. It's the best boxing game I've ever played, which means like it's 81% feels low considering how much Ed was into it. But also I think by the standards we've had for boxing games in Games Master, this does feel like one of the higher rated ones. Definitely. And this is a odd game because I could not find much about this game to tell you. It was released in Japan as Kensei, the king of boxing. It was only released a month before this European version. And it is technically a sequel to Victory Road Boxing that came out on the Saturn. And other than that, there's not much to say. This is one of those games that has definitely slipped through the cracks. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a boxing game guy. So this wouldn't have been been much on my radar. But like, you know, when you see the, you kind of Google it and you see that artwork, you're like, well, I definitely remember seeing that on shelves. I just don't think I've ever played it or known anyone that had it. For me, boxing games are mainly super punch-out. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's yeah. for me as well, yeah. Pandemonium is great if you like jesters. In a recent survey, though, 87% of the world didn't. The thing with Donkey Kong and even Crash Bandicoot and all the good platform games, the levels are really cleverly designed. And Pandemonium just comes across to me as it's just been put together by someone who knows how to do fancy 3D graphics. And in my opinion, it's just pretty boring. I totally disagree. This is a very good platform game. That's what's been forgotten. There are 18 extraordinarily huge levels with as many bosses as you can gather. There's also two separate characters to play, both of which who jump in different ways and perform different actions. It is absolutely superb. I'm not, I really don't know what he's on. Definitely recognise this next game, though. Oh, absolutely. My mate, I actually was going to mention this a couple of weeks ago when we had that Independence Day CD-ROM that you had. I actually forgot about it because I was so engrossed in you telling me about your experiences with that CD-ROM. But you know they were talking about the, the PlayStation game for Independence Day. My mate, that was one of his three games he had for his PlayStation when he first got it. It was that. I cannot remember what the other one was, but Pandemonium was the second game. And he loved this game. He thought this was a fantastic little platformer. And you know, there's me still in my 16-bit 2D era. And he's just like, look at this 3D world that I'm currently living in, even though it's, it's 2.5D type of deal. But what I was actually really interested about with this uh, review is the difference between Rick and Ed. Like a really, really different thing. Like Ed is not into this game at all, thinks it's really boring. And Rick just pops up being like, I think this is really good. I don't know what Ed is talking about. And it, then, like, it comes up with the score, 70%. 
I, I don't quite know what to make of it in the end. This game, it was published by Crystal Dynamics. It came out for the PlayStation, the version reviewed here, the Sega Saturn, Microsoft Windows, and Luke, guess what? Oh, Ash. I mean, I, I can't wait to do this. What's that? The Nokia N-Gage? Look at that fucking N-Gage reference. I never thought we'd get the N-Gage on this show. I just didn't think it would ever come up in our timeline of things or anything connected that we could talk about. My housemate at university had a fucking N-Gage. And Pandemonium was one of the games he had on that N-Gage. A guy that used to work at my local game shop, he may still listen to this podcast. Big shout out to Big Papa Kev. If he does, he had an N-Gage and he loved his N-Gage to the point where wherever I saw an N-Gage or any reference to an N-Gage, I would always take a photo of it and send it to him. Like we were in the museum of, I think it was computing or games or something, and there was like an old broken N-Gage stuck to the wall. And I'm like, look, it's where it belongs, in a museum. Also, when you think about it, it's it sort of writes itself, doesn't it, the N-Gage? Success is right there for you. Mobile phones are popular. The Game Boy is popular. What if we just throw these two things together? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Profit. Unfortunately, the question mark, question mark, question mark that they chose is take design inspiration from an early obscene internet meme. <laughs> and also put the way you actually speak on the scene on its thinnest edge is where the speaker and receiver are. It's very uncomfortable to hold for a phone call. Much like the internet meme that it took its <laughs> inspiration from. But... The main game of Pandemonium, they began developing this in December 1994, and they started development by spending a good two to three months going, right, how do we make 3D video games? Uh, Sega are asking the same question, by the way, while trying to make Sonic Extreme. Still while trying to make Sonic today. <laughs> Still asking that question now. It's uh, the start of Gamescom as we're recording this, and we've now just had the release date for the new Sonic game. And I don't know what it is, Luke, but the more I see of this new Sonic game, the more I am like, it's not going to be a traditional Sonic game, but Luke, it might be good. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even holding out hope for it. I'm in a blues clue what to make of this thing. I'll always be irritated at Sega for just doing Sega things. I, I'll, I, it's a new Sonic game. I'm bound to give it a shot. But also, I'm going to be playing it through gritted teeth of being like, this isn't what I fucking <gasps> signed up for, Sega. It's not what you sign up for either. Just do your smacking jobs, lads. I mean, you say it's another example of Sega doing Sega things. Would we love Sega as much if they didn't keep being Sega doing Sega things? Like Nintendo, you just love them for the way they are. Oh, Sega, you've stapled your testicles to the wall again. <laughs> oh, you wacky scam. <laughs> you wacky little, you little blighter, you. Not been able to make a good Sonic game for nearly 20 plus years. Oh, what are you going to do next? Speaking of stapling testicles to the wall, this game was actually fairly tough. I didn't play it a lot. Uh, like I said, a friend of mine had it, so I, I played it around at his house. But when I got my PlayStation, I never got Pandemonium. So I think I've only ever really played the demo of this because I'm pretty sure I had a demo disc with it on. That's as far as I think my Pandemonium playing got to. It was definitely on the official PlayStation magazine demo because I remember playing the demo of it. The demo was actually how this started. They spent that two to three months working how to make a 3D game. That produced a demo level, which they put on at E395. And then once that was done, they kind of brought a lot of other people into the team. There was over 30 people working on this game at one point to try and build the rest of the game around it. At an early point in development, they decided that they were going to record hundreds and hundreds of one-liners for the character to say, you know, like Gex. 
<laughs> and also, for some reason, at the beginning of June 1996, the team went, you know what, it'd be good to get this released before Thanksgiving. So they kind of turned themselves into crunch mode. Is crunch mode a thing if you itself impose it on yourself? If you decide that it's, it's time we crunch? Is it still crunch mode? Like, are you still a masochist if you're only hitting yourself? I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's an odd one, but they spent the last two, three months of development basically fine-tuning, balancing, bug-fixing, trying to make sure it held a solid 30 frames per second. But Luke, this is not the only place this game is reviewed. Uh-oh. It's time to strike it, <laughs> Lukey. Okay, here we go. It's reviewed here for the PS1, and Luke... It's a Les Ellis review. Now, me and Les have been on a pretty good page as of late, so uh, I'm, I'm excited for this one. Okay. Graphics. Huge, sprawling levels with clever designs. Colourful in a sinister kind of way. 85. Ooh, 89. <clears throat> Ooh, okay. I didn't think it was going to go that high. I, I could tell by his tone that's not a 90s thing. Okay, okay, cool. Good to know. Sounds. Nothing too outstanding, but everything here suits the game and creates an atmosphere. Okay, I'm sticking with the 80s. Going lower. 82. 80. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Gameplay. Non-linear, and more importantly, fun gameplay make this a top platformer. So that makes me feel like we're going over. Bang on 90. 89. <laughs> ah, close that one. Lifespan. A massive game with plenty of variety and lots of replay value. It'll last longer than Crash. Ooh, a nice little reference to Crash Bandicoot then. I think we get a challenge on that later on in the series. Do you know what? I would have said, fuck it, in for a penny, in for a pound. 89. 89. <laughs> yeah, lovely stuff. So, graphics 89, sound 80, gameplay 89, lifespan 89, judgment gives crash a bit of a shoeing in the gameplay department and comes out as the 3d platform champ oh that's interesting also i mean i don't think this is as good as crash bandicoot personally i mean you'd think it's 89 though surely three of the four results are 89 sounds is 80 even with law of averages it's not going to bring it down i mean if unless it does but if it does it's only bringing it down by one it would be a delorean oh that's made me question it now because i was just going to say 89 god i'm a twat <laughs> is it a DeLorean? I can see you being so certain, and I'm just like, I'm just going to sow some dissent into this in a conversation with yourself. Is it a DeLorean? Is that your last answer? Yeah, I'll say a DeLorean. It is 88. <laughs> what a weird scoring system. Like th three of the four are 89. But then the other's 80. 89 plus 89 plus 89 plus 80 divided by four. Do, 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 do. Actually, it's 86 is the average. 87 if you round it up. So 88 is closer than 89. I suppose in a way. But even then, 87 is what it should be getting. So you got it right and you're complaining. All I'm saying <laughs> is they make this shit as they go along, which is fine. I review things for a living. I get it because I just do that as well. Mate, we talked about a review earlier where things were rated in ends. Okay, former Territorial Army dog killer Paul Ram has been playing through Gumbly since the start of the show. And if we look at the screen now, we can see he's on the second last level. But Dave, during that little VTP snare, he's lost another life. This is going to be tricky now, isn't it? Yeah, he got picked off. He doesn't seem to like the missiles, Paul. He got picked off by another missile. That means he's only got two lives now to finish this game with. Right, here we go. Back to Gunblade. It's the finale of our challenge here. He's on the final two areas of the last level here. And unfortunately, he did lose another life during the review section we got there. And he's now up to this 
final, final boss. And he's got this final level to do, this final area, with just one more hit remaining. It adds an incredible level of drama as we go into this finale. The only thing that could make this finale even more tense as he's in Midtown at night, it's the toughest level of the game. Everything is going on. There's guys leaping left and right. And Dominic's like, this is the perfect time for a joke about Ladbroke Grove, where I live. And no sooner has he finished forming that joke than Bruce basically takes a missile to the face and it's game over. And it's game over. It, it's a bit of a damp squib of an ending, unfortunately. It doesn't quite have that Martin Mather's like, oh, sort of finale to it. It's just sort of like a, nope, you're dead, mate. Paul, uh, that was the beginning of the last level. It all went horribly wrong. Tell us what happened. Well, my arm was totally numb from all the vibrations I've been playing for ages. I hope we, we can all sympathise with that That's particular true. physical ailment. Okay, and um, one of those guys, I should have shot him first, and he just come back and didn't give me a second chest. How, when you were in the territory alive then, how many dogs did you actually kill? I didn't actually kill any of them. None? No. It was just theory? That's right. Would you like to kill a dog? Not really, no. Can we return the dog then? Please, I'm sorry. It's all off. Right, okay, thanks very much. And that's it. Post-match, Paul says that his arm had gone numb from all the action, something Dom says that we can all sympathise with. Wank jokes. One of the guys came back and he didn't get a second chance and that was it. Game over. But Luke, the challenge may be over, but there is still a very, very important question that needs to be resolved. Yeah, so we talked about this at the start of the episode. Dom thinks the two funniest things about this episode are wanking jokes and the murder of dogs. So he asks Paul, do you want to kill a dog? <laughs> Paul's like... Nah, not really. I've I, not really done it, and I don't really fancy doing it now. And Tom's like, all right, yeah, cancel the talk. We're not going to do it anymore. And they play in sound effects on this ruff, 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 in the background of this dog that's not going to be murdered on Games Master. This entire thing, and, you know, I don't feel we have to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. We in no way advocate any violence towards animals at all. Just no, not, not even, like, joking about doing it but at the same time the combination of dom doing the speaking into an earpiece bit and a dubbed in dog barking noise it was dark as hell but i laughed i felt really really bad and that dog sound effect continues to bark so it just sounds like the dog is joining in with the applause from the audience he's very happy that paul's not getting the joystick and he's not dead perfectly perfectly happy what doesn't make me happy luke is that's it yeah, that's the episode. Only two reviews and no feature. This is it. We've got our final line hit, burying Danny Bear. And that's the end of the episode. Okay, that's it. We're all out of time. And next week, we'll see uh, the second semi-final of our footy tournament. But I leave you with this question. If you cross Danny Bear with a monkey, would you get a very stupid monkey? Good night. Fucking penalties. It's not a bad episode. Like, I don't think this is a bad episode. No, no, no. It, it, it has got some really, really fun challenges, some really dark humour, absolute savagery on Dave Perry, some fun news we just, you know, talked about. But but also, it really needed a feature just to kind of go from missile to the face, dog killing joke, and good night. Danny Bear is a really stupid monkey. It feels like an episode where they thought he would do this like they had actively planned for him to win this challenge and that would have been the grand finale to this but unfortunately like, when they cut back to him he like he on that final little little section of it he beats the boss but then goes down to one hit and then like his final stretch in that final area is so short 
that it doesn't really have a lot of the emotional impact that it should have had. And I, I didn't feel we got enough of seeing Paul actually playing the game to get invested in the journey that he was taking on this game. This is not like the Martin Mathers challenge. It felt like we got loads of mine playing the game in back in Series 5. This was just really small snippets of him doing it. And so it doesn't really feel like it is a full challenge. We barely see him playing the game. We never really see him take the hits. It's all in replays. I blame the football challenge. It does get in the way a little bit. Those penalties take forever. And the thing is, you can edit the three-minute half. I'm sure that three-minute half does not run three minutes. But you can't really do much with the penalties. They've got to play out in the time they take to play out. Maybe cut a loading screen or two or a little bit of interstitial animation. But they take the time they take. They should have a no penalties policy specifically in Games Master Football Challenges because they're always crap. Just like penalties in real life are always crap. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's, I, I would disagree with that because I think penalties are quite exciting when you're watching it as a football game in, in real life. But on video games, it's not as interesting. And, on, and then watching someone do it on a TV show is less than interesting. It wasn't a great football challenge to begin with that then has quite a bad ending. And it just means that the gunblade challenge gets really really trimmed down and and in itself doesn't feel like a good challenge off the back of it which i think is a real shame because it was such a good conceit and i love what they did with it last series but yeah the football challenge here going long hampers that one so i don't even know where this leaves us on this episode because the news was fun the challenge while we didn't see much of it was fun the football challenge it was cool to see a game that wasn't fifa taking center stage and it actually being a good football game and not a pants one that's kind of cool. Reviews were nice enough. Is this the most middling episode of Series 6 so far? It is a middling episode. It really, really is. I also kind of wish that it was FIFA 97. You could have done the indoor sports one. You could have done the indoor football rounds, which is really fun then because there's no throw-ins. It's just the ball bouncing all over the place. And it would have might have created like a bit of a chaotic atmosphere to it. Probably would have had a higher scoring game. We wouldn't have had to get a penalties. But I, I think this is a, a very middling episode. It's not a bad episode per se, but like it's certainly not the highs that we've had with this series run so far. And actually, the next few episodes we have with this football tournament, I feel we are in a bit of a middling period. I think part of it may come because these football games, while they are getting more graphically impressive, are also getting more complicated to play. And I think that starts to really show that a lot of these footballers are not gamers. It wasn't too bad when it was a Mega Drive with three buttons. Now it's a Sega Saturn with 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 eight buttons. It's easy to pick up and play a, a FIFA game on the Mega Drive. You can spend like 10 minutes playing the game and you completely get it. But if you're not a gamer and you get given a 3D football game, we saw it with FIFA International Soccer on the 3DO back in Series 4. It's a much bigger task to get into. And I don't think either of these two were particularly great at it. While I, I think that Michael was the better gamer, of the two he's not the one that wins which means we've got richard the one who doesn't appear to actually want to do this is the one that's going through to the final weird episode weird episode indeed yeah where where are you feeling percentage wise i mean i'm I'm low 80s if i'm anything the thing is well with last week's episode i think i was at 80 percent or it might have been 81 because i thought the yuri geller challenge really dragged down what was a very solid challenge because i really enjoyed the martin made the stuff on on virtual cop 2 I didn't like Gunblade as much as Virtual Cop 2, which means I think I'm actually going to go down into the 70s category, but not by much. So I think I'm actually getting 79% on this one. I'm 1% above you. I'm at 80. 
it's definitely worth checking out, even if it's just from the purely professional interest in watching the, the kind of like the fracturing of the Dave and Dom friendship even further. Like probably one of the most savage shots fired across oh, yeah. at this point. The Dom-Dave stuff in this is a fascinating little thing, particularly with the benefit of hindsight, because we know what is coming in a few episodes' time. And I, I think actually a lot of the wanking jokes are really good. And yeah, like you mentioned earlier, the really dark humour around all the dog stuff is quite funny peppered through. And so like it is, I don't think it is a, an episode without merit. It's just it's not the best episode of the show so far. Like, I think it is the worst episode we've had thus far, but that doesn't mean it is the worst episode. It's the worst episode thus far in Series 6, but overall, the first five episodes have been really strong. Yeah, exactly. But I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to chat with us in real time, chat with other listeners, other fans of retro gaming and pop culture, you can do so over on our Discord. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over on our Patreon page where you'll get access to UCP Extra and our monthly community show, Under Console Nation. And if you back us at the £5 level, you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad-free. And at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do they get? At the £10 level, they get our Patreon supporter bonus pack stuffed with sweeties, stickers, badges, retro trading cards, all contained within our golden, glittery, golden joystick waggler mug. And a big hello to our newest £10 supporter, I Am Cheadle, who joined us today. Yeah, just in the nick of time as well. It was about an hour before we started recording, so your name will be read out. Amongst these other £10 backers, Xanderthal, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Simon, Sean, Sarah, aka Pink Lithium, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boo, Mark, Link, Kevin, Jamie, Ian, I Am Cheadle, Harriet Menkegel, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, David Fisher, Darkside73, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andy, Andrew, and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 